Oh Lord, you are a great God, and you have demonstrated that in so many ways in creation, in the Word of God, in your dealings with the nations. And Father, in your dealings with us, we can all acknowledge that you are great. Father, it's an awesome thing to open your Word and to share it with others. Pray that you would speak, pray that your Holy Spirit, who knows the needs of every heart, would minister to us this morning. Father, some of us need encouragement, some of us need exhortation, but you know what the needs are, and we trust in you, that you will meet every need, and that you will be glorified in and through the ministry of the Word of God. So we just commit our time to you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. All right, please be seated. Trust you're enjoying the, uh, the excellent weather. It's been uh, cooling down quite a bit, which has been very nice. We've really enjoyed it. Friday evening, actually Friday afternoon and evening, uh, my wife, Sabana, and I attended uh, a wedding. It, it was the first one that we've been to, believe it or not, uh, since uh, Jake and Aileen's wedding, which was way back in December 2020. So they managed to just sneak in before the pandemic hit. Um, we caught up with a lot of people that we hadn't seen in a while. We met some new people as well. It was really overall a very enjoyable experience. Now, as most of us are aware, the climax or central moment in a wedding is that time when the bride and the groom face each other and they exchange vows. Now, there's, there's different variations of these vows but they typically go something like, I take you, or I choose you to be my lawful wedded wife, or my lawful wedded husband. So the bride and the groom declare that they choose each other above all others to put the, and put the welfare and well-being of their future wife or their future husband above all others. Now, one of the most potent lessons of the marriage vow, really, is that that real love equals commitment. Uh, and that is forever, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poor, in good times and in bad. Now, in our case, a good friend of the family, uh, a gentleman named Johnson John, officiated this wedding. As it turns out, Johnson also officiated our, uh, our engagement, which took place about 23 years ago. Uh, he reminded me of that. I had a chance to, to catch up with him and speak briefly with him during the, uh, during the reception. He shared with me that he has been married to his beloved wife, Valsa, now for 42 years. Uh, really, that is a confirmation of genuine and lasting love. So where am I going with this? Well, we all know that Jesus loves us. Uh, a taste of that love is what initially drew us to him. But as we grow, as we continue on in life and walk with the Lord Jesus, we get more and more evidence of the authenticity of his love. He continues to demonstrate it through a steadfast commitment. You know, in many cases, when we, really, when we fail to show him uh, love and fidelity in return. So for the next month or so, we're going to be looking through the book, uh, as Rohan mentioned, through the book of Malachi. Today we're going to focus just on chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and go there. Uh, 
in your pew Bibles, it should be page 801. This passage gives us, is going to give us some wonderful insight into the nature of God's love and the proof of that love. Uh, but before we dig into the passage, I want to do two things. Okay? I want to first give some historical context for the book, historical and cultural context for the book. And then second, I want to give an overview of the message and the purpose of the book. Okay? So to start off, the word Malachi means my messenger. Um, Malachi is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, some other examples that you may be familiar with include Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Micah. Uh, examples of major prophets, for example, are Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Okay? Malachi is the last of the prophetic books in the Old Testament canon. After he died, there was prophetic silence for centuries until the first New Testament um, prophet arrived on the scene. And most of you know that is... John the Baptist, right, John the Baptist. Okay, so there is some debate about exactly when Malachi lived and ministered and when this book was written. Uh, There isn't a lot of historical information in the book. Malachi does not have any references to Jewish or Gentile leaders, doesn't discuss any uh, significant events or historical events that would allow us to place him chronologically. However, general consensus is that he wrote, he ministered and he wrote this book sometime between 450 and 430 BC. So this is the post-exilic period. This is after Israel returned to the land of, uh, of, of uh, Israel, uh, before well, the people of Israel returned to the land and to Jerusalem um, after the Babylonian exile. So that's the time period we're looking at. Okay, so what is happening culturally at this time? Okay, the Jews had returned... They had rebuilt the temple and the city. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah document that. But decades had passed since that time. And it's possible that the excitement of those great happenings had kind of worn off. Um, A kind of cynicism and skepticism was creeping in to the, the religious and sacred lives of the people. It started right from the priests and then it spread to all of the common people. Uh, the priests had become corrupt in their, in their official d- religious duties. That included serving at the temple, uh, teaching the word of God. And then the people had become corrupted in a number of ways, including through intermarriage. Now, Judah as a whole had really lost its messianic hope. And its people had devolved into focusing on the mundane necessities, the pleasures of the here and the now. Okay? That's where they were culturally. So in this context, God is going to use the prophet Malachi to both rebuke and to encourage those who had returned to resettle in the land. Uh, Eugene H. Merrill, who was a distinguished professor of Old Testament studies at the Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote this in an article on the website Bible.org. Malachi's message as the prophetic word of Yahweh was one of rebuke, an indictment. A message that ended, however, with a note of ultimate hope. In a series of disputations, the man of God called to account all the guilty, challenging them to face up to and confess their sins to the Lord of the covenant before whom, in fact, they stood in arraignment. His word is strong, impassioned, and unrelenting. 
for he lived in critical times. Unless he could get his message across, there was real and imminent danger that the gains of the post-exilic renewal would be irretrievably lost. That was a concern. God was renewing and restoring this nation after returning them from exile in Babylon. But there were lots of problems. There were problems, and those problems needed to be corrected. Now, we don't have time to go into all of these in detail, and as I mentioned, we are going to be camping out in this book for the next several weeks, and so I'm sure that all of those things will be discussed in detail, but it's still helpful to have a sneak peek of what these issues and problems are to kind of set the context, to understand what Malachi was dealing with. All right, so starting off, we mentioned the priests, okay? Well, the priests were dishonoring God by offering uh, things that were polluted, sick, damaged, diseased animals. Okay, God made it very clear that was not acceptable, all right? In addition, a priest had corrupted the covenant. It was their responsibility to teach and instruct the people in the law of God but they were not doing that and they were actually, what they were instructing them was incorrect, okay, was evil. So the priests were falling down. Well, what about the people, all right? The people of Judah were becoming unfaithful. Not only were they intermarrying uh, with foreign Gentile people, they were also divorcing their wives, okay? You can read about that. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, God was not very happy about this. Okay? In addition, God actually accuses them of robbing him by refusing to bring in the tithes and the offerings which maintained the temple and maintained the worship. Okay? Now, you can read about that in chapter 3, uh, verses 6 to 12, but a portion of it is here. So God responds very candidly, very um, openly and transparently to these problems. He calls out the nations and he tells them that he gives them some warnings and some promises. He says, you need to turn this thing around. You need to change. This cannot continue. Okay. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, he gives a promise of a refinement that is going to happen. It's going to start with the priests. They're going to be refined by fire. And then, uh, through chapter 4, well, chapter 4, God promises that there is a day coming, a day of the Lord, when God is going to act, and God is going to act with devastating impact, okay? So just to kind of wrap up, Professor Merrill, who we've mentioned before, says that the book is organized into a series of six disputes or disputations. Now, each of these disputes has three elements to it, okay? There's an assertion by God, there is an objection or response by the people, and then finally, there is a response. The first of those two, it it kind of outlines what the problem is. And the last one, which is the response, gives the divine instruction. So chapter 1, verses 2 to 5 is really the first of those disputations, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's the topic of that is God's love for Israel. Go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles. Hopefully you're at verse 1. 
of Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1 introduces this book with these words. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, the New King James, if you were to look in there, it actually replaces that word oracle with the word burden. And that word burden conveys a sense of a heavy weight. So the idea here is that of a heavy weight. Now, many of us have been in a situation where we have to deliver a message or issue some correction or maybe even a rebuke to somebody. It could be a child, it could be a family member, it could be a worker, a co-worker. We often in those situations preface what we're about to say with something to the effect of, you know, brace yourself. What you're going to hear is going to be hard, okay? I have to share this with you, but it's going to be hard to swallow. Um, But it's very important that they hear what you have to say, that they pay attention and that their reaction, the way that they react, is critically important. Now, there was a time, uh, not too long in the past, where I had to um, cor- uh, do corrective action with a coworker. Some of you have been in that situation. Now, this coworker was capable, but their performance had kind of deteriorated. Our customer had pointed that out. And so I was in a situation where I had to give a warning and a, a, an improvement plan had to be put in place with the understanding that if that was not successful, then more serious action would ensue. Now, my concern in there was that I would get a somewhat superficial response. There would be outward concurrence and agreement, but without the real uh, commitment to follow through and make a change. Now, fortunately, in, in this case, uh, my coworker took these things to heart, made a serious effort to change, and and they were able to regain the confidence of their uh, of their uh, supervisor and all of their coworkers. So that turned out well. But the outcome here is not that certain, and so the spirit of God is starting off the words with this introductory verse that you know a heavy or judgmental message is about to be delivered, and it's important that the people pay attention. It's important that how they react is going to make a difference. So that's how he started it off. But then there's kind of a shift. Okay, if you read in verse 2, go ahead and look at verse 2. This heavy and convicting message kind of starts off in a somewhat unexpected way. It starts off with an affirmation of God's unchanging, unconditional love for the nation. I have loved you he says, okay? That word there that's translated ahav, um, it means to have affection for, to have affection for. It conveys more specifically a sense of preferring one or selecting one above another. Now that word there actually appears, it appears in Genesis chapter 22. Now most of us are familiar with Genesis chapter 22, This is the passage where Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. God has told him to sacrifice him. And so God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you, that's the word there, aha, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now Abraham at that time had two sons. He loved them both. 
But he had deeper affection, stronger affection for Isaac because Isaac was the one who had been promised to him and, and to Sarah. And, and he was also the one through whom God was going to fulfill all of his promises, not just to Abraham's family, but to several families. Now, God had deep affection for Israel. Both the patriarch and the nation were very, very special to him. It was through Israel that God was revealing to the nations his nature, his character, his majesty, his glory. And it was also through Israel that he would bring in the Messiah, the Savior. Now, when we look at verse 2, we might be tempted to think that this declaration of love is just it's some sort of a platitude. It's just something to kind of soften the blow that is about to come because there are some harsh messages and some heavy messages that are coming. But it's really not a platitude. It's not just for that purpose. It is really genuine and sincere. And even more than that, it is the reason behind the indictments and the exhortations and the promises that we're going to read about in the rest of the book. God is confronting this nation with their evils because he cares about them, because he loves them. He wants them to turn things around. He wants them to change so that they can experience, they can see the fullness of his glory, so that they can be used by God as witnesses. Now God's declaration of love, if you were to read, continue to read in, in verse 2, it triggers this first objection or this disputation. Malachi documents this in verse 2. He says, But you say, how, how have you loved us? Now, we can't be sure if this was an actual statement by somebody who was listening to Malachi or if Malachi was just reading the thoughts or reading the minds of, of these people. You know, generally speaking, when we're talking to somebody, we can kind of discern, right, by facial expressions, by body language, whether that person is, is, is being sincere or whether they're being kind of sarcastic. Um, and probably Malachi could perceive what the attitude behind that statement was. But certainly the Lord knows exactly what's in the heart. Okay? So we can trust this is, this is the attitude. This is an attitude of, of skepticism, of unbelief. Right? They're not asking this question sincerely. And it's interesting here that they're not as bold as to outwardly just say God is a liar. They're not calling him a liar. Okay? They're a little bit more subtle than that. Right? What they're saying, the implication behind these words are, what, what's the proof? You know, what, you're making this assertion. What is the confidence? What is the evidence of this love that you're talking about? Now, can you imagine how this objection would have impacted the heart of God? You know, God has shown marvelous mercy and grace to this nation. He has taken them out of Egypt in the distant past, he has brought them into this new land. He has established them. He has prospered them. Even when they sinned against him, he's been gracious. Through the exile, he has preserved them. And then now he has brought them back into the nations and restored them. And yet they have the audacity to question God's love. You know, sadly, this isn't an isolated incident. You know, the first instance, I'm sure that comes to mind uh, for you, the first instance, you can go all the way back the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3, to Adam and Eve. Now, granted, that was evoked by the deception of the serpent, 
right? But what it means is that mankind was ready to believe that God had some ulterior motive, that he wasn't sincere, that he was holding something back. Now we know that he was holding something back, but that was something that would end up causing them agony and suffering. You know, it says something about God that he is willing to put himself in this situation again and again. Uh, He demonstrates, he shows, he proves his love for his people. And yet, they turn around, reject him, and rebel against him, and then accuse him of being unfair, of being unjust. You know, how would we respond if we were in that situation? Yeah, we would, we would lose it, right? We would not have much patience for that. But he doesn't. God patiently reasons with the unreasonable until the light goes on. And unfortunately, not every light goes on, but some do. And each and every one of those is precious to him. So what is the nature, going back to this question, what is the nature and the cause of this skepticism and unbelief from Israel? Well, it isn't objective. It is not substantiated by facts. And we're going to see that in future weeks as we go through the rest of this book. It is based on subjective feelings. It's based on, in their minds, God was not living up to their expectations. These folks had come out of exile in Babylon. Uh, They had come back to Jerusalem to restart the nation. There had probably been some hardship there. Uh, God had initiated that return and established them in their nation. And so they probably expected God to make life easy for them. All of their needs to be supplied, they probably expected that Jerusalem would return to the glory days of David and Solomon. But that's not what happened. The challenges and the hardships continued. Maybe in some ways they even got worse. And so what Israel failed to recognize, what they failed to realize is those hardships were both well-deserved and they were necessary. They were failing. They were falling away from the track, the path that God had for them to be a witness. And God was pulling them back. Really, they were hardly in any kind of position to complain that God was being unfair. God was justifiably disciplining that nation. He was allowing the consequences of their own choices to visit them. And if you think about it, that that discipline that, that God is bringing upon the nation is really a confirmation of his love. He is seeking to bring Israel back on track. They are going way off track. And he's bringing them back on track. I think this is a, a good lesson for us. You know, we're sometimes tempted to, think, uh, tempted to think negatively about what the things that God is doing in our lives. You know, when we do that, I think we should first think about how we are treating Him. Are we being faithful? Not that God expects perfection from us, But if we are treating him with contempt, if we're not ignoring his word and not falling through on the things that he has asked us to do, then, and we complain that he's being unfair, that he's not living up to our expectations. That's what we often do. So now look at verse 3. 
going back to the passage, uh, this is really getting into the, the response, uh, God's response to the objection. He says this, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So you're probably wondering, you know, how, how does this respond to the objection? In a way, it seems to almost raise more questions than provide answers. What's happening here is, how does hating Esau and devastating his land demonstrate love for Israel? That's a valid question, but in order to kind of resolve this conundrum, we need to first of all understand what is meant by hated. Okay? Hated for us is, is an emotional response. In the case of God, hated isn't primarily about emotions or feelings. It's really about the way that he interacts or the way that he treats people. Okay? God loves all folks, but he, all people, but he treats them or interacts with them differently. And it's also a relative thing. Okay? It's a matter of selection or preference. If we were to read through the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that God rejected Esau, but he chose Israel. Now, in contrast to the favor and blessing that he showered upon Israel, the way that he treated or his interaction with Edom, uh, which was the nation that came from, from Esau, it seems like hatred by comparison. Now, there's a statement by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 to 27, that kind of gives us insight in, into this, this sense of hated. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, the Lord Jesus says this, If any man, woman as well, come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Lord Jesus isn't requiring his followers to have a sentiment of ill will or loathing towards his family members or towards his children. Okay? That would be contrary to the teaching of Scripture. However, in comparison to our fervent devotion and dedication to the Lord Jesus, any affection that we have for others, it, it seems like hatred. That's the, that's the sense. It's a sense of preferring one above the other, okay? Now going back to Esau, again, if we, look through the, if we read through the Old Testament, we can see that there are very valid reasons for God's treatment of Esau. Now Esau rejected God, put all kinds of things, all the material things in front of God. He was a sensual and he, he was a worldly man and he didn't really place value on spiritual things. Not to say that Jacob was a saint, Okay? But he had a value for spiritual things. He had a value for the, the covenants that had come down, the promises of Abraham. All right? Esau removed himself from the blessing of God, and so God rejected him. And that didn't stop with Esau. Okay? It continued on to the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom came from Esau, and they essentially followed in his footsteps. And just a couple of examples... Um, you can read these afterwards. In Numbers chapter 20, tells us that this nation, Edom, they refused passage to the nation of Israel when they were going out of Egypt 
to the promised land. So this nation, Edom, consciously chose to oppose the miraculous work that God was doing in delivering Israel and taking them to their inheritance. And it doesn't stop there. Later on, several hundred years later, Edom actually conspired with the nation that was attacking and eventually took Israel into exile. That was the nation of, of Babylon. Right? You can read about that in Obadiah chapter 8. Right? So as a result of this, God judged and condemned this nation uh, because they rejected spiritual things. And he did that, he judged this nation in a way, in the only way really that they could understand. They were a materialistic nation and so he took away their cities. He destroyed their cities. He devastated their land. And that was the only way to make it clear to them, to get across to them that this, that this was judgment. Now in verse 3, the Lord points to Esau who is really, if you think about it, this is Jacob's own blood brother, right? And the difference in the way that he is treating that nation compared to the way that he's treating Israel, the marvelous grace that he's shown to Israel, okay? God demonstrated ahab, that is love, affection, preference to Israel by deliberately choosing them for blessing and as the line through which he would bring the Messiah. And this is a choice that has, was never annulled. The benefits of that choice extended to that generation that came back from exile. And really, it extends all the way down to Israel right now. Now even, you know, the, the proof of this is even the destruction of the temple, the desolation, the destruction of that nation, that is Israel, uh, the exile of all of those people, it never canceled the promise. That promise continued. Because, and we see that because a century after that deportation, they were back in their land. They were flourishing as a restored nation. Worship had been restored. Right? That's not the case with Esau. Esau had been devastated. But God spared Judah from annihilation, allowed her to come back to their land. And this is really the strongest evidence that God would offer of the fact that, that he loves Israel. Israel survived then, it continues to survive now when Esau had been decimated. Okay, so verse 3 kind of looks back, right? Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 looks forward. The Lord says this in verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now you can look at this as a prophecy or a promise, but either way, this is, this is kind of hard to understand, right? It seems somewhat vindictive. It seems like the Lord is holding a grudge. You know, after all, doesn't Scripture say that He is gracious, that He is forgiving, right? It doesn't seem that way. You know, I'll admit, on the surface... It may seem that way, but we need to, when we look at the Word of God, and this is a good principle to follow, when we look at the Word of God, sometimes we need to dig below the surface, all right, and understand what is happening. We also need to interpret this verse in the light of what we know about the character of God and what we know about the character of Esau, okay? The Bible makes it clear to us that God is gracious. God is forgiving, but He does not tolerate outright rebellion. And that's really what we have here. 
this nation of Israel, uh, of Edom, is refusing to acknowledge that the setbacks that they're facing is really the judgment of God. Okay? They refuse to repent and turn to Him. They're just obstinately declaring that they have the strength, they have the resources that they need to rebuild despite the God, uh, God's judgment, despite whatever He would do, they don't need God's help. They will rebuild on their own. That's what those verses are saying. And God's response is, go ahead and rebuild. But everything's going to be torn down again. It's not that God is vengeful. There's a real danger here that Edom is going to persist in this godless ignorance and never acknowledge their need for God, never come to Him in repentance. And really, that would be much worse than any kind of material suffering or hardship that they face. The fact that they would continue in their obstinate rebellion against God. God is disciplining them here to draw them to himself. And if the judgment seems harsh, it's because their hearts are really hard. You know, God continues to oppose and will continue to oppose Edom, and eventually there's going to be decimated um, because they persist in their rebellion. They refuse to humble themselves and to submit. Now we see here this contrast between the nation of Edom and this Israel in this response, and, and this really gives us an understanding of why he treats these nations so differently. Both these nations went through judgment at the hand of Gentile nations. Israel's response was to humble itself. They realized they had sinned against God. They acknowledged His gracious hand. They rebuilt the temple, reinstituted worship. Yes, they did mess up again, right? They weren't perfect. They messed up again. God had to correct them several times. But deep down in their hearts, they were in the right place. They had the right attitude and right perspective towards God. Edom was the opposite. God's judgment only made them harder, only made them more rebellious. They refused to acknowledge or turn to the Lord. And so God's response for them was devastation. Now fortunately, look at verse 5. Fortunately, this passage ends on a very hopeful note. We mentioned that. Verse 5 tells us that God could look into the future. He could see Israel's heart and he could see their future. And this is a prophecy that ultimately Israel is going to gain spiritual understanding. They're going to see. They're going to, they may not understand right now what he's saying about this contrast between Edom and Israel. But ultimately, they are going to see his greatness in the way that he deals with Edom, the way that he deals with Gentile nations. And they will eventually come around and understand the depth of his love. Now, there have been times in my experience, when, when people that I know, people that I'm close to, have questioned the sincerity and authenticity of my love for them. You know, that's probably happened, that happened to all of us, that probably happened to you. You know, in my case, I have to be honest. You know, um, I probably deserved it. I probably deserved the doubt and the skepticism. There were probably things that I did that made it questionable. But not with God. God does not, His love for us is sincere. It's 100% sincere. 
right? We know that. The problem is we often make the same mistake that Israel did, right? We, we tend to look at external circumstances, what's happening on the outside. We tend to consult our feelings and we think about expectations that we have that aren't being met. Right? And we doubt God. We doubt his love. Right? And in the end, who suffers? We do. Now, I think one of the takeaways of this passage is we need to change our perspective. We need to move from the subjective to the objective. And we need to understand that God's love for us is evidenced in his commitment to us. Right? In good times and in bad, right? whether we're sick or we're healthy, right? that is the real proof of his love for us. Now, if you're sitting here, some of this stuff is new, uh, hearing about God, about his love. Uh, you know, perhaps the love of God or, the, or, or speaking about the love of God is not a revolutionary concept. We've all heard it before. But you may have heard it so many times, actually, that, that maybe it's become, you've numbed yourself to it. You really haven't, you know, it's almost you're, you're, you're impervious to it. But let me ask you, have you ever asked this question that Israel does? How? How have you loved us? Right? Have you ever asked that question? And you know what? It, it doesn't matter if you may have asked it sarcastically or skeptically. Right? God wants to give you a response. And that response may surprise you. He shows his love through a steadfast commitment to your blessing. He wants to bless you. Not just here in this life, but through eternity. And that commitment, that love, led him to forsake his own son, to suffer and to die on the cross for your sin. Okay? That is the way that God evidenced his love towards you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God demonstrates his love for you. It's actually us, but it demonstrates his love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. How much longer are you going to reject that love? How much longer are you going to turn away from this marvelous salvation that is available to you free of charge that the Lord Jesus Christ purchased through his death, through his suffering on the cross. The Bible says this, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Receive him today. You can do it where you are. Receive him today as your savior, and then you too will know for sure how he has loved you. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your marvelous love and the way that you have demonstrated it to us. Father, you demonstrated it to Israel in the way that you blessed them, the way that you continued with them. You brought them from Egypt to Israel 
And even after they had been banished in exile, you brought them back to their nation. And Father, they didn't understand. Sometimes we don't understand. We don't see how much you love us. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who has not yet experienced that love, that they would come to accept your love and your forgiveness and your salvation in Christ. And for us, Father, that we would be confident in that love because of your commitment to us. We would have that right perspective. Lord, we just thank you for it. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.